Hi everybody, I am just making a little pit stop here on my European vacation to uh, check in with the audience and, and do a podcast. You know, we just got in this morning from Prague, we were there for a few days and we are now in Vienna. And most of you know that I ascribe to the Austrian school of economics and I always give the Austrian perspective on things. Well, this is the first time I've been able to do a podcast and discuss Austrian economics from Austria. Although I'm not sure how much economics I'm going to talk about on today's podcast, but because I was looking at, you know, some of the headlines from the week and a lot of them have to do with politics and the law. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about some of these Supreme Court decisions on today's podcast that I am going to focus on Austrian economics, although maybe just being in Austria uh, will, will be enough. But before I even get into that, I want to talk about the markets because on Friday, we not only ended the month of June, but we ended the second quarter and we finished the first half of 2023. And this year has not gone the way a lot of pundits expected at the end of 2022. After all, inflation was raging, the Fed was hiking rates, and the Fed was now on a trajectory of hiking much faster, where the ultimate peak would be much higher. So all of this was negative news. You know, the stock market got clobbered in 2022 as a lot of this bad news uh, came to the surface. Of course, you know, I, I knew that this bad news was coming. I'd been warning about it. I knew that inflation wasn't transitory, that the Fed was sugarcoating it, uh, and that rates would have to go a lot higher and stay higher for a lot longer. And more importantly, it wouldn't even work. Even though the Fed was going to fight harder to beat inflation, it was still going to lose. Inflation was going to win, although the markets still haven't come to terms with that reality. But based on that negative backdrop, we got this big rally, which again, surprised a lot of people, myself included. Uh, I was not looking for this spectacular rise in the NASDAQ at the end of 2022. Now, I wasn't short the NASDAQ, so you know, it's not costing me any money. The fact that I'm not necessarily long these stocks, although obviously, I, you know, had I bought them, I could sell them and, and, and make a profit. And the stuff that I do own has gone up, most of it. You know, most of my non-gold stocks, <coughs> excuse me, are up on the year. Although my gold stocks are up on the year as well, although they had a pretty uh, weak quarter. Uh, but they're still up so far in 2023, but not nearly as much as most of my non-gold stocks, which are doing a lot better than the gold stocks. But looking at what happened in the month of June, the S&P rose... 8.3% just on a month. I mean, a very, very strong uh, month. The NASDAQ up 12.8%. The Dow bringing up the rear up 3.4%. Russell 2000 also up 8%. But if you look at the NASDAQ 100, it was up 14.5%. And some of the you know speculative ARC innovation up just under 10%. The Grayscale Bitcoin Trust had a huge month, up 
and gold stocks were actually down 2.6%. On the quarter, it was a similar story with the S&P up 8.3%, the Dow up about 3.4%, so pretty much unchanged on the month. Uh, the uh, NASDAQ up 12, no, I think these, I think I've got some of these numbers wrong because I got the same numbers uh, for the NASDAQ. So I'm not sure that the, the, the NASDAQ 100 though, up 15% on the second quarter. Uh, Grayscale up 17.3%. Gold stocks, the GDX down 7% in the second quarter. I kind of rushed some of these numbers before the podcast. So I think I kind of mixed some of them up. But here's the real important ones, which I know I got these right. In the first half of the year, the S&P 500 is up 15.9%. So this is the best start to a year since 2019. And if you remember, or the best first half, it's not really the start of the year, the whole half is over. But what happened in 2019? Well, that's the year the Fed started cutting rates. It surprised everybody by cutting rates. And if you remember, I predicted those rate cuts because towards the end of 2018, when everybody expected the Fed to keep hiking in 2019, I predicted that the next move would be a cut. And and I was right. And that surprised the markets. And that's what inspired that big rally. Well, now we've had, you know, as a bigger rally, even though the Fed hasn't even started cutting rates yet, it's still hiking rates and indicating it's going to hike some more. We still got this big rally. And I think it's because the markets don't really believe the Fed. They know the Fed is likely uh, near the end or done hiking. And so that is the relief rally. But again, what the markets still don't get is that inflation is going to get worse. Not, you know, not better. The Fed hasn't won. The Fed has lost. The markets just haven't figured that out yet. So the Dow up 3.8% on, uh, on, on this half of the year. So again, not doing that well. Although the Dow was up three consecutive quarters. I think it's, you know, the only, of the in, only index that is up three quarters in a row. The other indexes were down on the fourth quarter. And they're just up uh, the first two quarters of 2023. Russell 2000 up 12.3% on the half and the NASDAQ up 31.7%. That is a huge move. That is the best first half of a year for the NASDAQ since 1983. So 40 years uh, best. But what's more significant is the NASDAQ 100, which is just the biggest NASDAQ stocks that, you know, that would include uh, the, the Googles and the Facebooks or Meta, whatever it is, but those really top companies. That was up 39% for the first half of the year. That's the best showing ever for uh, the NASDAQ 100. Um, the um, Grayscale Bitcoin Trust up 130%, more than double on the year. But you know, even though it's up 130%, on the year, it's still down 67% from its peak. So that really puts the rally in perspective, shows you how much that trust went down, even with that big gain. The same type of story for the Kathy Woods Arc Innovation uh, ETF, that's up 42% first half of this year, but it's still down 72.4% from its peak. Now, I think these are all bear market rallies. I think that yes, there were a lot of shorts in the market that got caught 
that have been covering. I think this AI narrative kind of came out of left field. Nobody was really talking about this at the end of 2022. It kind of gathered a lot of momentum in the second half of this year. And so that kind of lit a fire underneath a lot of these big cap tech names that were already going up because of short covering. And the fact that the markets were starting to price in the rate cuts, even though you know we're not even near them yet or we haven't had the Fed concede them. The markets have gotten ahead of the Fed, but we've had a lot of acceleration. But all the economic news really has been bad. I mean, we've had a little bit of good news. I mean, the employment numbers continue to surprise on the upside. But again, I think this is all very superficial. We continue to get a lot of weak economic data on the week. I pulled up a couple of the low lights. Um, Dallas Fed Manufacturing Survey. This is for June. Another negative number. Not <coughs> quite as negative as the previous month at minus 29.1. But still minus 23.2. That's a big negative number. And the production index got worse. It went from minus 1.3 in May to minus 4.2 in June. <coughs> Excuse me, I still got this cough. Um, personal income and spending numbers. And again, remember, these are not adjusted for inflation. Personal income up 0.4, spending up just 0.1. And in fact, they revised down the spending from April. This is a main number from uh, up 0.8 to up 0.6. And so these were disappointing numbers on spending. And again, these numbers are not adjusted for inflation. And you still have the core PCE year over year up uh, 4.6%. Only a slight improvement from the prior month of 4.7. And the headline PCE up 3.8, which is a, a little bit better than the up 4.4. Uh, but again, these numbers are still significantly higher than the Fed's 2%. And in fact, during the week, Powell uh, gave a speech in which he conceded that the inflation rate is not likely to return to 2% until sometime in 2025. So that's another two more years. And of course, he's still wrong. We're still not going to get down to 2%. But for Powell to say that we're going to have to wait another two years, because a lot can happen in the next two years, including a big recession, which means lots of money printing, which means inflation could take off. If you've got to look forward two years in order to forecast 2% inflation, you have no confidence whatsoever in the accuracy of that forecast. So in other words, Powell has no idea when, if ever, inflation is going to get down to 2%. That is a big admission that should have really been positive for gold. In fact, I think the one reason or the main reason that gold and gold stocks didn't do better in the second quarter is because the NASDAQ did so well. The overall stock market did so well. I think gold stocks just got sold off because people probably bought gold stocks as a hedge because they expected the markets to keep falling. And so they thought maybe the, the gold stocks will go up. But when the markets surprised everybody by rallying, I think some of the people who bought gold stocks as a hedge, they decided to remove those hedges. And so the gold stocks went down. 
Anyway, let me take a quick break. We'll be right back. I've got some more economic data. And then I want to focus more on some of the Supreme Court decisions that we got during the week. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. We got some other economic data I wanted to mention that I think the markets thought was a little bit stronger. And that was the GDP numbers that came out for the first quarter. And they were looking for an increase of 1.4%. And we actually got 2%. So that surprised the markets, mainly because of personal uh, consumption expenditures. That was a bigger rise than they thought. They were looking for up 3.8%. And the number was up 4.2%. But again, a lot of this is just spending all of the economic data, the production, the manufacturing numbers have been extremely weak. In fact, here, here's another one, the Richmond Fed Manufacturing Index for June, another negative month. It was minus 15 in May, and it was minus seven in June. I mean, a little bit better than the minus 10 that they were expecting. But what's significant is that all of these numbers always begin with a minus sign. This is a weak economy. And in fact, you know, one of the reasons uh, that so many people are spending money is because a lot of people that have student loans still aren't making their payments. I mean, I can't even believe this. I'm reading all these articles about student loans. And maybe this is a good transition into these Supreme Court cases. But the moratorium on student loan interest payments and principal payments began during COVID, right? It was supposedly emergency. People were, it was COVID, so people couldn't make their student loan payments. Of course, the, the irony of that is most people made more money during COVID than they did before COVID because you had a lot of people who were receiving stimulus checks that were bigger than their paychecks. So they actually had extra money that they could have used to make their student loan payments, except they didn't have to make the payments. So not only did they get the extra money from the stimulus checks, but they got the extra money from not having to make any payments on their student loans. Same thing, a lot of small businessmen got these PPP loans. Maybe they had some student loans that they didn't have to make payments on and they were swimming in uh, PPP money. So supposedly everybody didn't have to make these payments. It's now been three years. It's, you know, it's what July in 2023 and people are still not making their student loan payments. Now those payments are supposed to resume September 1st. Now, I don't know, maybe they will, maybe they won't, but that's when they're supposed to resume. And <clears throat> you don't have to start getting late payments. They don't start, I guess, interest or penalty. I don't know what that happens, but that doesn't start until October. So you have to start making your current payments in September, but you don't have to really start making your back payments until October, right? If you want to be able to, you know, start paying 
without any interest or penalties, right? So I guess you could, you don't even have to make your first payment in September. But again, nobody has to make the back payments. It's not like you have to make a big lump sum payment. It was just a moratorium. All your payments stopped. And all interest stopped accruing for three years. And so now you're just resuming. But the point is, all of these people that have student loans, and there's actually more than $1.8 trillion in student loans. That is a huge number. I mean, that's more debt than we have credit card debt, which is about $1.3 trillion. But that is a lot of debt. And there's, of course, no collateral behind the, the student loan debt. It's not like you could take somebody's diploma back if they don't pay the student loan. Right, at least with a mortgage, there's collateral there. If somebody doesn't make the mortgage payment, you could take the property and sell it and get some money back. But if somebody doesn't make the student loan payment, it's 100% loss. There is no collateral to recover, to try to collect anything. It's 100% loss you know, on, on, on student loans. But that's an enormous um, amount of principal where there are no payments. So what have all of these people been doing with the money that they didn't use to pay their student loans? Well, they've been spending it. They've been buying food. They've been traveling. They've been buying computers or whatever. They've just been using the money. Well, what's going to happen to consumer spending when all of a sudden people who haven't made any student loan payments in three years all of a sudden have to start making payments? And of course, during those three years, the cost of living has gone way up. Prices are much higher today than they were three years ago. And now people don't have that extra income that they're not paying on their loans to cover those higher costs. Yes, you know, wages are up a little bit, but not nearly as much as prices. So that means we have to see a big drop in consumer spending if people resume payments on these loans. And that's just going to accelerate the downward pressure on the economy and move us into recession. Of course, in theory, that should reduce the deficit somewhat because now the government's going to start collecting those payments. But you're not going to see that because of the increasing interest rates that are going to swell the, the deficit. So the deficits may increase at a somewhat slower rate because people are now paying back some of these loans to the government that they weren't paying before. But we're still going to see increasing um, deficits and we're going to see increasing debt service payments as more and more low yielding debt matures and has to roll over at these higher rates. <coughs> but getting back to the Supreme Court, what also happened this week on the student loan moratorium <coughs> is that the Supreme Court declared unconstitutional uh, Joe Biden's um, pre you know, presidential decree that um, there'd be student loan forgiveness. And this is something, of course, that was obvious. I mean, even President Biden himself a few years ago admitted that he had no constitutional authority to uh, forgive student loans, but then he did it anyway. And now that the Supreme Court is validating what he first said, he's acting like this is a shock. Like, how dare the Supreme Court uh, declare this unconstitutional? Clearly, the executive cannot, by decree, wipe out uh, debt for so many Americans. Because obviously, 
that is this like a spending bill. Uh, you're, you're, you're giving money to some Americans and obviously you're putting the bill on everybody else because if the government is going to forgive student loans, that's revenue that the government was supposed to get that it's foregoing because all the people that have student loans, we're going to have to pay those loans back. And Biden forgiving the loans, well, you know, that's like, that's like a tax cut for certain individuals. And now you're going to have much bigger budget deficits, which other taxpayers are going to have to cover. Clearly, the executive can't do that. I mean, we presidents just don't raise taxes or cut taxes on their own. All of this stuff has to go through Congress. I mean, all these revenue bills have to originate in the House and they move on to the Senate. And only after both houses of Congress have decided on this, does the president get to have a say. He can either uh, sign the bill or he could veto the bill, but he can't bypass Congress altogether and just, you know, pass a decree. And then, you know, the way the Constitution works, even if the president rejects a bill, he vetoes a bill that Congress passed, Congress can override his veto. But here, the president by decree decides to forgive student loans and there's no way that Congress can override that decision. The president just stole this authority, constitutional authority that belonged to the Congress. And he just, you know, usurped it uh, for himself. And of course, now what is Joe Biden doing after he, you know, realizes that he violated the Constitution? He's trying to figure out how to get around it. Well, you know, if the Constitution says something, your job is not to try to get around the Constitution. You know, when Joe Biden is sworn in, he swears an oath to defend the Constitution. He doesn't swear an oath to try to get around the Constitution or avoid the Constitution. He's supposed to follow it. He's supposed to obey it. And so if the Supreme Court says, hey, just in case you didn't realize this, what you're doing is unconstitutional, Joe Biden is supposed to respect that other branch, right? Because he doesn't have any respect for Congress. That's a different branch of government. Now he doesn't have any respect for the Supreme Court either because maybe he was asleep during civics, right? Eighth grade. But we have three branches of government. Biden is the, ex the executive. He's just that one branch. You got Congress and you got the Supreme Court. Well, apparently Biden doesn't care about Congress or the Supreme Court. He just wants to, you know, be a dictator as uh, the executive and just decide what he wants to do. And he doesn't want the other uh, branches of government to have any say in the matter. Uh, and that just shows you, you know, the, the type the type of president that we're dealing with here. Now, in addition to that ruling, which was a good ruling, by the way, in fact, the Supreme Court came out with some good rulings for a change. And this is one of the things, you know, I've, I've given President Trump, you know, I criticize him for a number of things, but one of the things at least he did a good job of was his Supreme Court picks, right? Because his Supreme Court nominees, they're coming down on the right side of these decisions. None of these are unanimous decisions, by the way. So you still have these justices that want to ignore the Constitution and just push a radical left-wing agenda through the court. Uh, but you have... Uh, justices who take their oath seriously and are striking down 
unconstitutional laws. Now, they're not taking it so seriously that they're, you know, they're unwinding a lot of really, really bad precedent. Of course, these cases aren't really before them anyway. So, you know, they're not even ruling on some of this stuff. But we got some other uh, good decisions that came down. Another one was on affirmative action at colleges and universities, particularly the Ivy League like Harvard. Uh, The Supreme Court came out and said that discriminating against people based on their race is wrong. That (coughs) it violates, you know, the civil rights laws. And of course, a lot of people are very upset about this because they want colleges to discriminate based on race. And they think the fact that the Supreme Court says they can't is somehow a loss for the civil rights movement because colleges are, have to actually not discriminate based on race. And of course, what they were doing is they were discriminating against Asian Americans or Caucasian Americans uh, in favor of African Americans or Hispanic Americans. And the Supreme Court says, well, that's wrong. You know, if you can't discriminate based on race, then you can't discriminate based on race. You can't, you know, discriminate against some races, but not other races. That wouldn't be treating all the races equally. Now, of course, the Supreme Court uh, narrowed this to public universities. <coughs> and universities that are accepting government money. So private universities that accept government money or that have students that are taking, you know, government loans, you know, which is, you know, another reason why I don't like government, you know, getting involved in everything, because once they give you money, they kind of own you and they can dictate what you can do. Now, in this case, you know, it's not a bad thing that they're saying you can't discriminate based on race, but the government is able to do a lot like the 55 mile an hour speed limit. The reason that they were able to enforce that, once upon a time, a lot of you younger uh, listeners might not remember that it was 55 was a national speed limit. Now, clearly the U.S. government doesn't have the constitutional authority to set a national speed limit on, you know, state roads. But the reason they were able to do it is they said, well, everybody gets federal highway funds. And if you want to keep getting your highway funds, you know, you got to have a 55 mile an hour speed limit. And if you don't have the speed limit, we're going to take away your highway money. And so it really became a federal law by extortion, which I think was still unconstitutional, but that's how it happened. I mean, you accept the government money, the federal government money, and now they get to dictate, you know, how you have to operate. And so kind of the same thing with these universities, um, you know, if you're going to be beholden, if you're going to take government money, well, then you got to do what the government tells you. And that gives the government a lot more control because they control the money. And so they control you. Um, but I am in favor of this decision because yes, if you're going to accept government money or if you're a government run university, government should not be discriminating, uh, based on a race. Now in the private sector, that's a whole different conversation. I've had that before and I don't have time to get into it on this podcast. So I'm not going to do it, but I agree with this concept that governments should be neutral. They should not be discriminating. And what universities like Harvard were doing is they were uh, rejecting applicants who were Asian or who were white 
in favor of applicants who were African-American who scored much lower on the SATs, who had lower GPAs. In fact, I was looking at these numbers and <clears throat> for um, Asian-Americans, in order to get into a university, you basically had to score on your SAT 140 points more than a white applicant to kind of be on the same playing field. And you had to be 450 points higher than an African-American. I mean, that is huge uh, in the scheme of uh, the SAT to have to be 450 points higher just to be, just to be even. In fact, I was looking at um, another, uh, some other numbers. Let me find them here. Somebody texted me the, um, the, uh, the, the, the chart. Oh, now I can't even find it. What did I, where, where did it go? Um, oh yeah, here it is. And this was ad admission rates. This was, I guess, was Harvard. But this shows you, you know, if you were in the top 10% of the, you, you know, I guess your class or, you know, for SAT and uh, scores, SAT scores, maybe it was GPA as well. But I think, but you're in the top 10%. If you were white, you had a 15.3% chance of getting in. If you were Asian, you had a 12.7% chance. But if you're African-American, you had a 56% chance, which means you were more likely to get in than get rejected. You know, 56%. For Hispanics, it was 31%. And then if you go down to like the top 40% of your class, if you were white, you had a 4% chance of getting in. Asian, a 2.5% chance. African-American, 30% chance. So you had a much, much better chance of getting in. Uh, and that was all because of reverse discrimination. The colleges were discriminating against Asians, against whites, to make it easier for blacks and Hispanics to get into these uh, unique, uh, you know, Ivy League schools. And now they can't do that anymore. And so there's, you know, a lot of uh, people are very upset about this, including the colleges. <coughs> and what they're claiming is that, you know, this is going to make colleges less diverse. And what their goal is, is diversity. Diversity seems to be more important than the education or than excellence. It's just, we want to have a diverse student body. We don't want the best students. We just want the most diverse class. As if somehow diversity is going to lead uh, to a better outcome for, for the graduates. And what is actually going on now, a lot of these colleges are saying, we're not even going to take SATs anymore. In fact, I read that about 80% of colleges, even before this decision, decided not to take SATs uh, or require them. And that's because during COVID, for some reason, again, uh, the university said, okay, we're just going to not require SATs because, you know, you can't take them because you can't go down to the test centers because, you know, you might catch COVID. We don't want to subject all these young people to COVID, even though, you know, they weren't really at risk of, of anything serious because they were all young. Young people, you know, pretty much shrugged off COVID. Uh, but we didn't have the SATs. And then the, the colleges, the universities uh, found that, oh, we have a much more diverse uh, uh, incoming class now when, you know, we don't have to have the SATs. And so they're getting rid of them. And, and now the Ivy Leagues, 
I think you're going to want to get rid of them so that they can have the diversity and not have to accept people based on uh, their grades or you know their, their, their SATs, even if you take grades. The reason you need the SATs is because not all high schools are the same. I mean, some high schools you know, aren't that challenging. The, 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 the programs aren't very rigorous or competitive, and it may be easy to get an A. You know, whereas another high school may be much tougher, um, a school much more competitive. They don't give out A's like cotton candy. And so a, a high grade point average uh, at one high school may mean a lot more than at another. So the way they leveled it out is, well, let's give everybody the same SAT, and then we'll have an objective standard measure. Uh, and then that'll, you know, that'll kind of smooth out uh, the differences in these high schools. But now they can't do that anymore. But to me, they're just going to even further diminish the value of a high school, I mean, of a college degree. Because once upon a time, very few people went to college. I mean, maybe 10% of high school grads went to college. A lot of very smart kids that graduated high school didn't go on to college. I mean, they didn't need to. It was just real uh, academically gifted, very smart kids that wanted to pursue occupations that, that needed the higher education who went on to universities. Most people didn't do it. Now, of course, everybody is going. But I think what's going to happen as a result of the dumbing down of the universities, because what they're going to have to do now, obviously, is lower the bar, right? And, and, and so I think the, the best and the brightest are probably just going to skip college altogether. They're just going to learn on their own. They're going to use artificial intelligence. They're going to use the internet and the computer. They're going to learn and they're going to go out into the job market. And I think uh, employers are going to put even less stock in a college diploma, which may be nothing more than an a remedial high school diploma because I think the best and brightest kids will skip college. And so the people that are more likely to go on to college are the people that didn't do very well in high school, probably can't get that great a job, don't have a lot going for them. And so they just decide to take a four or five, six year vacation. And, you know, they'll be able to borrow a lot of money uh, to go to college. You know, I mentioned we have $1.8 trillion in student loans. Where'd all that money go to? It went to the colleges. It went to the universities. That's who got all the money. And, you know, all of this reverse discrimination, uh, allowing, let's say, African-Americans to go to these colleges when they really uh, you know, couldn't handle the work because they, they really didn't have uh, the background uh, to succeed. And so you know, they, they allowed them in anyway. Uh, and they didn't graduate, right? They, 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 they weren't able to compete uh, with these other kids. They shouldn't have been there. They should have been doing something else. They should have been learning a trade or maybe going to a less competitive college where they may have been able to succeed, but they're in over their head uh, and they borrowed a bunch of money, right? Now they, they, they drop out of college. They've been there three or four years. They never graduated. They got a ton of debt. Are they better off? No, they're worse off. They're worse off. They wasted time in college that they could have put to productive use and now they're underwater in debt. Is this really good? Is this good for African-Americans or Hispanic-Americans to now be loaded up with debt and to, and, to, and to have wasted their time in college? And even if they got a degree, uh, to not be able to do anything with it? I mean, it, they're really, this was a sellout uh, to, to those communities. Uh, but what I think what's going to happen 
is, you know, the, the, the value of these degrees is going to be even lower because it, it's not about excellence. It's just about having a diverse experience uh, for four or five years uh, that ends up enriching the colleges and universities at, <coughs> at everybody else's expense. <coughs> Excuse me. The other uh, uh, significant decision that I wanted to comment on was the Supreme Court ruled that a woman who uh, made websites for weddings, she had on her website some language to the effect that she only did you know, heterosexual weddings. She made websites for weddings between men and women, right? Didn't matter what, you know, what race or what religion. She just wanted to make sure that one person was a man and the other person was a woman. If it was two guys or, or two gals, she didn't want to do those websites, right? And it was a religious preference. She just, you know, believed that marriage was between a man and a woman and that's basically what she wanted to work on. Well, you know, oh, this is terrible. You can't discriminate. And it went all the way up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said, yes, you can. And I agree 100%. You know, now you have a lot of people saying, oh, this is a major setback for the rights of, uh, you know, gays or LBGQ, uh, you know, that it's, a, it's a, re, a, a setback for their rights. It's not a setback because you don't have group rights. These are privileges that have been disposed uh, um, uh, um, uh, on people, bestowed, excuse me, on, on people by government. They are not rights. You don't have rights because you're a member of a group. That's a privilege. Rights belong to individuals, not groups. And this Supreme Court decision is a victory for individuals and all people, regardless of their gender, of their age, of their sexual orientation. Everybody is an individual first. This includes the LBGTQ community. They're all individuals and they have rights because they are individuals, not because they happen to fall within some kind of protected group. So this is a victory for individual rights that this woman has the right to create the type of websites that she wants to create. Now they're acting as if this is some major problem that uh, gay couples are gonna now confront because you know they're going to have problems finding people willing to make them websites. That's a bunch of nonsense. This woman is the exception, not the rule. Most businesses don't care if their clients are gay or straight. They just want the business. I'm sure that you have to look hard to find a, a business that's going to turn down um, you know, a gay couple. You know, the same thing happened a while ago with the, this bakery that didn't want to bake a cake for a gay wedding. And uh, so uh, a gay couple sued them. And I said, you know, they, it probably took them weeks to find one baker that wouldn't bake that cake. And, and then they filed a lawsuit. It's not like you have problems finding a baker who's going to bake you a cake for a gay wedding. I mean, the wedding cakes, you know, those are the holy grail of cakes. Anybody who's got a bakery you're waiting for that order for a wedding cake. That's a big cake. You make a lot of money on a wedding cake. How many people are going to turn down a wedding cake because, you know, there's two grooms on the top or two brides? I mean, not many. The fact that this 
religious person was going to turn down that business, that was a sacrifice for her. It wasn't a sacrifice for the gay couple because there were hundreds of other bakeries that would have baked them a cake. And again, I pointed out on one of my podcasts, you know, if I was gay and I was getting married, the last thing I would want to do is force somebody who didn't approve of gay marriages to bake me my wedding cake. I'd be afraid to eat the cake. I'd be afraid to serve the cake. I mean, what if, what if they spit in the cake? Why wouldn't I want to just find somebody who approved of my lifestyle and give them my business? The same thing with this, this website. All right, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm a gay guy and I'm trying to get married and I want to have a website to commemorate my wedding. Wouldn't I want to hire somebody who supports my lifestyle and, you know, and, and what I'm doing? I mean, I would want to do that. Why would I want to give my business to somebody who thinks I'm doing something wrong? But if somebody believes that what I'm doing is wrong, they have a right to, to express that opinion. They have a right to run their business however they want. Now, I know a lot of people would say, well, I mean, what if they wanted to say, uh, I don't want to <coughs> bake a cake or I don't want to do a website for a black wedding or, you know, a Jewish wedding. I'm Jewish. Fine. That's fine with me. I don't care. You know, if, if, if somebody doesn't want to do Jewish weddings, I'll find somebody who, who will. It's not like it's hard. Just go on the internet, you know, Jewish weddings. I mean, it's not going to be difficult to find somebody. In fact, it'd probably be difficult to find somebody who doesn't want to do that. I mean, if you want to narrow your scope of business, let's say I just want to make uh, websites for Indian weddings. I want to turn down weddings for everybody else. I just want to specialize in Indian weddings. So what? Let me do it. Who am I hurting? What is the big deal? You know, a lot of people are <coughs> going to uh, resent what uh, the, um, the, the gay community is trying to do here. Because there's a lot of people who, who would otherwise be very tolerant of, of other people. And they start to resent uh, having all this stuff forced down their throats. You know, people have to be tolerant. I've, I've mentioned this before. It's the left right, that claims to advocate tolerance. They are the least tolerant people out there because they, they don't tolerate any difference of opinion. And to truly be tolerant, you have to tolerate people who have opinions that are different than your own and uh, choices that are different than your own. And you have to be in favor of free speech because that was also a part of this Supreme Court ruling on the, uh, the, 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 the websites for weddings. If this person wanted to write on her website that I don't want to build websites for gay marriages, that's her right to express that. She has a First Amendment right of freedom of speech. She has freedom of her religion. You know, she can do what she wants. It's her own business. And if she wants to turn down the money, let her turn down the money. So that is another positive Supreme Court decision, a step in the right direction, not because it diminishes rights, but because it protects rights. Because the most important rights, the only rights we have, are the rights we have as individuals. And we all have those rights equally. Men and women have equal individual rights. Black, Hispanic, gay, straight, everybody is an individual first and that's where they get their rights. Just because you happen to associate yourself with a particular group 
There are no rights there. Unfortunately, there are privileges. And we're not supposed to have privileges in the United States, right? That's like nobility. We're not supposed to have a noble class where a group of people enjoy special privileges that everybody else has to pay for. No, we're supposed to be a nation of individuals where everybody has the same rights regardless of uh, any other characteristics that they, they might have. <coughs> couple more things I want to talk about in today's podcast. One of them being the continuing uh, Hunter Biden, uh, uh, Joe Biden saga. It's more and more obvious that um, the president is, you know, guilty of committing serious crimes, uh, both while he was uh, vice president and probably now that he's president of the United States. You know, more and more stuff is coming out about Hunter Biden. And in fact, that conversation, that text message that Hunter Biden sent, where he sent it to a high-ranking guy in the Chinese you know, Communist Party, where he said, hey, I'm sitting here with my dad and you better pay me this money or my dad is going to get really pissed. You know, we're waiting. Me and my dad are right here and you better you know, send us this money. They now found out that that text message actually came from Biden's house. So uh, um, that Hunter was at his dad's house when he sent that message, you know, because the Biden administration is acting like he wasn't actually there. Like Joe Biden, I mean, uh, Hunter Biden was just lying. But even if he was lying, he was still using his father's influence to shake this guy down for money. And as a matter of fact, I think about five days later, he got $5 million, came in, you know, obviously uh, laundered through his, uh, his shell companies and he shared a chunk of it with the big guy. But this is all very incriminating stuff. Also more stuff about how uh, the Justice Department interfered with the IRS, who was getting ready, I guess, to throw the book at Hunter Biden, not just because he expensed, you know, strip clubs and hookers and stuff like that, as if they were legitimate business expenses. But I mean, talking millions of dollars of tax evasion, not to mention the fact that the income that he wasn't paying taxes on was illegal because it was basically extortion money. You know, Hunter Biden flew with his father when his father was vice president, flew down to China together on the same plane. And while he was there with his father on official business, he's doing all these deals. He's having all these meetings with these Chinese officials supposedly to invest in his fund. What is he actually doing? He is peddling influence. This, all these meetings should have been illegal. There should have been no way that, <coughs> that Hunter should have been able to travel with his father on taxpayer money. We paid for this trip. And then, <coughs> and then he used the trip to, um, to sell out the country. So this is all this bad stuff. Meanwhile, all they care about is, you know, the boxes of documents that Donald Trump had in his bathroom at Mar-a-Lago that didn't do any harm to anybody. This is some serious stuff. And again, you know, while the IRS, <coughs> the Justice Department was leaving Hunter Biden alone and Joe Biden alone, <coughs> what did they do to me? You know, what did they do to my bank? They wasted two years on this massive investigation that found nothing. And then they ended up shutting my, my bank down anyway. Between my last podcast and this podcast, it's now a full year since 
um, the Puerto Rican government unnecessarily put my bank into receivership, right? Because receivership is where you put uh, a business that's bankrupt, right? You need a trustee, you need a receiver to sort out the mess because you know there's not enough money to pay back all the creditors. Well, in the case of my bank, the only creditors were the depositors because the bank had no loans. We didn't borrow any money. We had a very clean balance sheet with no debt. Yeah, there were some bills that you ha we had to pay, but they weren't past due. They're just the bills you pay every month. And the business had millions of dollars in cash above what was owed all of the depositors to pay off those bills. So if the Puerto Rican government really wanted to get rid of my bank, they didn't want the transaction to sale to close because I had buyers for the bank. If they just really didn't want the bank in business, they could have just said, hey, Peter, you know, we're taking away your banking license. You got to shut down your bank. And I would have shut it down and I would have wired everybody back their money a year ago. No problem. And there would have been one or two million dollars left over for me. I would have gotten a little bit. I mean, I have $10 million into the bank personally. So I would have lost most of my money. I just wouldn't have lost all my money. And, um, you know, the customers would have had their money back, you know, about a year ago, right? Now, here's an update on what's going on. So it's been over a year. You know, while the, the money was tied up with the Portuguese government doing a, another uh, investigation for money laundering or tax evasion because of the false impression that OSIF created by inviting the J5 to a press conference when they announced the closing of the bank to talk about tax evasion and money laundering, even though they found no evidence of either at the bank, despite examining 2,000 accounts and a million documents, right? They found zero evidence, not even a single account that was suspicious, basically, uh, completely exonerating the bank. Uh, by talking about money laundering and tax evasion, you know, they, they spooked uh, the Portuguese government that froze the account. Well, while the account was frozen, there were a lot of updates going on with the SWIFT system that the bank didn't keep up on. But even after the freeze, about four months ago, they, they lifted the freeze, the receiver just sat on his hands. He didn't do what he needed to do. There were some updates that had to happen with EastNets. Uh, the, 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 the people at Kenta that were supposed to buy the bank and, and Osa said, no, you can't buy the bank, but you can buy the accounts of the bank that don't want their money back. They told, the people at Kinta told the receiver with me on the phone, like what he had to do. He had to get a hold of the Eastnets and do a few things so that the, the, the SWIFT account would, would, would be reactivated. Well, he never did any of the stuff he was told to do. Just like he didn't do any of the things that I told him to do to preserve the $500,000 receivable from Currency Matters that the bank ended up losing because the receiver did nothing. Well, the receiver did nothing again. And so we never made the, connect, the changes that we needed at EastNets. And then another thing that happened was at the end of this month, June 30th, the bank's uh, uh, <clears throat> contract with Temenos that runs the core banking software, that expired. And so we know the bank no longer has any banking software. It no longer really has any ability to do anything. And so the receiver has this new harebrained scheme, which he told me about, which was to take all the money that was in Nova Bank in Portugal, that's still there, and to send it to this online bank that he found in California. How he picked this bank, it's beyond me. The bank he picked has no ability to deal in any currencies other than U.S. dollars. Now, the bank doesn't even have any U.S. dollars. The deposits at Novo are euros predominantly, but also British pound, 
you know, there's some other currencies there. And so he wants to transfer all these currencies to this online bank in California, which will convert their correspondent bank is going to convert all these currencies to dollars. Now, I can't imagine it's going to be done at a very favorable exchange rate to the customers, but they're going to convert all these accounts to dollars. And now all the money is going to be sitting in dollars. And what the receiver told us he wants to do with those dollars, instead of wiring the dollars to the customers, he wants to write them checks. He wants to physically write a check to each customer, put it in an envelope and mail it to their address in Europe or Asia, wherever they happen to live. Because remember, none of these customers live in America. And I told the receiver like a couple months ago, and he's still you know, trying to go ahead with this. I said, you know, you can't do that because most of the bank's customers don't have the ability to deposit these checks. You go into a European bank with a, a check from some small bank in California that no one's ever heard of in US dollars, no one's going to take it. So you're going to send these people back their money and they're not going to be able to do anything with these checks. So they've been waiting over a year for their money. And by the way, they don't want dollars. They want their euros. They want their pals. This is a nightmare right now. I've been pushing back against this as best I can. You know, there are a lot of people who you know want to blame me. I've got nothing to do with this process. I've been totally shut out of it for the entire year. I wanted to liquidate the bank myself, but the, the regulators wouldn't let me do that. They insisted on a receiver. They insisted on appointing this guy who had no banking experience whatsoever to run this bank or to run the liquidation of this bank. But again, the problem with this is there is an inherent conflict of interest. The longer the process takes, the more money the receiver makes. He's making 15, 20,000 a month at least. He's been making it all year. I don't know how much time he actually devotes to this, but this whole thing is a cash cow. Why would this guy want to kill his own cash cow? He wants to milk it indefinitely, right? I mean, that would be you know what you would expect. So it's a very difficult situation that you've got here. Uh, and I feel very badly for all the customers. But you know, don't blame me. There is nothing that I can do about it. I can complain about it, but I'm complaining on deaf ears. I have no authority. Just like I had no authority to salvage that $500,000. I contacted the liquidator and I gave them all the information they needed. And they said, okay, great, but we can't accept it from you. We need that same information from the receiver. I emailed him multiple times saying, hey, this is what you got to send these guys to collect this $500,000. He just never did anything. And then they said, okay, you lose the money, right? Well, the same thing happened after this account was unfrozen from Portugal. Had the receiver simply done what the people at Kinta, who actually are all the former bank employees that end up working at Kinta, if he just would have done what these people told him to do, and these are people that actually had banking experience, he had none, including the person who Kinta hired, who was supposed to be the president of the bank after they bought it. She had already resigned from her bank that she was the president of, right? So I, I had sold this company to a fintech company that is now publicly traded in the United States that had hired a seasoned uh, banking president to run the bank. And instead, the Puerto Rican regulators appointed a guy with zero experience in banking to run the bank instead of this you know, highly seasoned bank president. I was on the phone when she told him what he needed to do and he still refused to do it. 
So it's very frustrating. I've had my lawyers complain that the OSIF, nothing happens. So I have no idea when anybody is going to get their money. They keep saying, oh, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. <coughs> I'm trying to get the receiver to <coughs> not send these checks out. <coughs> but he, he, it seems that he's definitely going to convert everything to U.S. dollars. <coughs> he's got his heart set on this online bank in California. Again, of all the banks in the country that he could have picked. Remember, we're in Puerto Rico. California is about as far away as you're going to get and still be in the United States. I mean, maybe he could have gone Alaska or Hawaii. But why this bank? I mean, there are plenty of banks that he could have chosen that could have affected transactions in euros and in British pounds. Why not pick one of those? Now, of course, I would have just sent the money directly from Nova Bank. But if he's going to transfer it to another bank, at least pick a bank that can accept uh, euros when you got euros that can wire out euros because now you've got all these you know foreign ex currency costs that that are going to have to be passed on to the customers so this is this is just a real mess but I, I just want to get this out there and I also want to thank all the people from Australia who volunteered to testify in person uh, at my hearing in Australia which is now we fought we got a date for the hearing and I think it's late January of 2024. Uh, so I got to wait till late January to get a verdict in this thing. Uh, you know, remember that the defamation was in October of 2020. So I'm, I'm, who knows what I'm going to get my judgment after I get the hearing. But the wheels of justice turn extremely slowly down under. Uh, but hopefully I will get vindicated and at least, you know, get the personal satisfaction of winning the lawsuit and I, you know, and I'll get some money, I'll get my legal costs back and I, I'll get a little bit for damages. But a lot of people are saying, I hope you take them to the cleaners. I hope you get all the money that you lost. I really wish I could do that, but it's going to be very difficult. Even though I lost tens of millions, maybe more, I'm going to recover a small fraction of that. Uh, but hopefully at least I can expose uh, the fraud, corruption and deceit. Uh, with respect to the, the individual reporters and the, you know, the, news, the news organization uh, that made the story up. And, and then even worse, even worse than making up the story, even if they didn't make it up, even if they were just mistaken, which I don't believe, but if you gave them the benefit of the doubt and said, hey, you know, it was just bad reporting, they just jumped to some erroneous conclusions. When they were confronted with the facts, they didn't admit they made a mistake. They didn't say, oh, we got it wrong. Sorry about that. We just prematurely jumped the gun. This guy wasn't guilty. Turns out that he was innocent. No, they just dig in their heels and continue to lie and, and, and continue to pretend that a false story was true simply to delay having to lose this hearing and allow me to have some modicum of vindication, even though their story already completely destroyed my bank. Anyway, that's it for today. I'll be back, I think, uh, in a week from today. I'm not doing as many of these podcasts while I'm traveling. Hopefully, I'll, I'll finally get rid of this cough. Man, I really apologize. It's been with me now for you know a few weeks. It, I'm, it's hard to shake it. I think I'm, I'm healthy other than uh, still having this cough. I think I'm going to be doing the next podcast from Montenegro. So until then, uh, have a great week, everybody, and enjoy your 4th of July holiday.